Good morning. Welcome back from whatever Thanksgiving travels you did or did not have these past few days. Um, just probably 45 minutes ago, I was uh, texting with um, Samuel Jenkins. Um, he and his wife, Emily, had their baby on Friday night. Um, after 20 hours of labor, um, Ezekiel, um, I don't know his middle name. He's, what? Bear. Like the animal. Animal, animal bear. Ezekiel Bear Jenkins. Uh, seven pounds and change, seven pounds, ten ounces, something like that. Um, so hopefully I'll go see them uh, this afternoon. And as right before I came up here, um, I was told that somebody else is celebrating their 14th birthday, Shay, who is now slouching even lower in her chair. Uh, I'm not going to make you stand up so we can sing to you, but can we just clap for her? Just clap. Yeah. There we go. 14's a big one. It's a good one. It's Jenny's birthday, too. Look at that. Look how excited she is about that. 25 years old. Give her a hand. You will pay for that later, Laurel, I'm sure. Um, obviously, Thursday uh, was Thanksgiving, and uh, just watching us as a culture do this Thanksgiving thing. I, I've been out of the country before for Thanksgiving. We lived in South Africa uh, in 2008 when we had our first Thanksgiving outside the country. And um, Thanksgiving, from what I observed, is one of the most universally popular exports uh, from America. And they, everybody was into it. They just thought, what a great thing to get together and eat a ton of food. Uh, and, and they were all too willing to celebrate Thanksgiving with us uh, over there. We tried to introduce them to southern biscuits and things like that. That's, a, that's another universally popular thing is biscuits. Um, you need to love and appreciate that God has put you in a place where you can eat biscuits. Because over there, the only thing that are biscuits are little tiny wafer cracker cookies, and they're fine, but they're not biscuits. You know what I'm saying? So... Um, and then as I've kind of come back, and obviously I've lived here since then for almost 10 years, and, um, you know, the day has this name, Thanksgiving. And fr probably from Halloween on, there's this push to jump straight to Christmas. And because we are losing kind of culturally agreed upon understanding of what Christmas means, for a lot of people, Christmas just means um, kind of this vague sense of magic, um, like lights and fun stories, some music, and, and mainly buying stuff. And on the day of Thanksgiving, we've increasingly let consumerism encroach upon this day that we have in our country for giving thanks. And I think that we've always, as a country, struggled, uh, as a culture, struggled with, with this idea of being faithful thanksgivers. Uh, but I would suggest to us, encourage you to 
make in your family, with your friends, whatever, a persistent countercultural value on giving thanks that does not just end on Thanksgiving, but persists, especially through a season that's inundated with consumerism, buying things, buying things, buying things, um, even giving things, a little bit of giving things. But I'd suggest that we need to lead our communities, lead our families in persisting to give thanks. It's a good and a joyful thing to do. So that also means that if you are somebody who plays Christmas music before Thanksgiving, you stand condemned in this church. I'm just telling you now, I am preaching against that. I'm going to die on that hill. Do not play your Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. That's all I'm really saying. You may now start to play your Christmas music. All right, turn to Isaiah 43. This is a last of five weeks on uh, the, what we've called the five solas of the Reformation. This one is technically not a sola, it's a soli. Soli Deo Gloria. Um, there's these five values that, that the people immediately following the Reformation looked back and looked at the Protestant Reformation and said, these are these sort of five values that marked what the reformers were doing and saying. So uh, we've talked about the authority of Scripture alone, Christ alone as mediator uh, of salvation. Uh, salvation is by grace alone and it's accessed by faith alone. And this last one is sort of uh, what one author described as kind of the blood that flows through the Reformation in its entirety. It's also kind of the capstone statement value for what the Reformers were trying to say about the nature of salvation. Um, and as we, we are 500 years on from the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, uh, and it's important to, to look back and, and remember that the state of things when the Protestant Reformation started, that this reacting against uh, medieval theology that in a lot of ways had, had degraded in a number of ways. There's really some beautiful things in medieval theology, but some really important ways uh, the people of the medieval church had become increasingly obsessed with making sure that they were good enough for God. Making sure that they were doing enough, that they were acquiring enough merit to be in good standing with God. And that was very much in the air <clears throat> that the medieval church breathed. Um, and the Protestant Reformation is reacting to that in some really important ways that has not only benefited the Protestant church, but it's also benefited, I would say, to some degree, the Roman Catholic church. Um, but this thing right here that we're about to talk about is at the heart of all that the reformers are pushing back on. And why exactly this system of merit, this am I in good enough standing with God was not good enough biblically, theologically for the people of God. So let me just start here reading in Isaiah 43. And we're going to read, we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read 13 verses. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. 
I've called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my son from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me there is no Savior. I declare and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth I am He. There is none who can, who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for gathering us here, for giving us out of the overflowing generosity of your being. God, we pray that we would be a people who are constantly in a position of gratitude. God, make us humble, make our hearts soft, make our ears open. Let your word continue to speak to us, penetrate us to the core of who we are. Help us to see your glory on display, God. This thing that you have made us for. Let us be a people who feast on glory. We thank you for this, Jesus. Amen. To the glory of God alone. <coughs> Before uh, the Reformers, it's not like nobody uh, was concerned about the glory of God. It's not like before Martin Luther, everybody was like, glory of God, not that important. Nobody was saying that. So what exactly, why is this a Protestant value? Why is this value uh, stated as one of the five central things of importance in the Protestant Reformation? And it very much has to do with all the things that we've talked about. And what we're saying when we say that all that God does is to the glory of God alone is that in His workings in the world, God intends to work things so that He is the one who is getting all of the credit. He is the one who is getting all of the credit for the works of salvation towards men and women. The emphasis in everything that the Reformers were writing and saying and doing was so that all of our self-confidence would be eroded. Now, that sounds like the opposite of the kind of news that we want. Well, I, I want to be more confident as a person. But they, the Reformers are looking at this problem 
where people are constantly laboring, struggling, wondering, being afraid that they would be good enough before God. And the problem doesn't just last your whole life. It gets kicked on down the road to afterlife so that when you reach purgatory, do I have enough credit in the bank to shorten my time to make up for all the ways that I wasn't good enough? So people are laboring under not just all of their lifetime, but beyond their lifetime. Am I good enough? You would think that the answer to that problem should be those people need to be more self-confident. But the Reformers would say, and I believe Scripture says, that that's the opposite of the answer. The answer is not to make people more confident in themselves. Because that doesn't work out so well. The answer is to make people less confident in themselves and more confident in God. In this passage in Isaiah 43, it's in this groupings of prophecies in the book of Isaiah called the Servant Songs. And you should have heard readings from the Servant Songs plenty of times in church before. Um, Within months, you'll hear them again. We usually hear more of them around Easter time. But these collections of songs are in this second, more hopeful, positive portion of the book of Isaiah. Most of the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, are pretty depressing. Lots of bad news. In chapter 40, the book takes a turn and becomes decidedly more positive. And in this section from 40 to the early 60s, late 50s, there's this reoccurring person that appears in Isaiah's prophecies, this servant figure. And you hear this person referred to in the passage that we read. And at times, this person uh, sounds like all of Israel. In, In this passage that we read, it certainly sounds that way. O Jacob, O Israel, whom I made, you are my servant. But at other times, it sounds like uh, the servant is the person who's calling Israel back to God. And in other times, it sounds like a prophet. So sometimes it's this shifting imagery of who this servant really is. But here in 43, we have this kind of statement of what God wants to do in His own character as it regards the servant and all of Israel. Because God is looking at His people Israel who are being judged for their faithlessness, their inability to be who they're supposed to be, their continual insistence on worshiping other gods throughout centuries of mercy and patience. And God is judging them and He's brought them out of the land that was supposed to be their inheritance. And it can seem at that point that Israel can look at the question, can we trust ourselves to be good enough before God? And the answer is no. And nowhere in the book of Isaiah does God say, if you would just try harder, if you would get more on board with my plan, then I would solve all this. But actually, God's here in Isaiah chapter 43, make sure that their identity and all that's going to happen to them is tied up with Him and His own identity. Listen to what it says here. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not what hold. Bring my servants, my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. So Israel has been scattered throughout the earth. 
He's saying here that God is going to call to every direction of the compass and He's going to bring His people from wherever they are. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now this is not talking about uh, how God has made people for His glory in a general sense. He's not, just like every person bears the image of God, every person is in some sense made for the glory of God. He's talking about the people who bear His name. A subset of all people. And these people specifically have been created for the glory of God, formed for the glory of God, for His own specific alternative purposes that are larger than every person everywhere. I have made them for my glory. What he then says is, my purposes, they cannot be thwarted. That's what he says in the ensuing verses. It doesn't matter what other gods you throw at me. It doesn't matter what else you do to interrupt my plan. I cannot be stopped. I will do what I will do. For my glory. In a relatively similar point in time, there is another prophet named Ezekiel, not Jenkins. I mean, maybe his name was Jenkins, I don't know. Ezekiel is a prophet in Babylon. He has been deported, he's been exported with. The, the people of Israel who have been taken over by Babylon, he's kind of in the first wave of that happening. And so he's been taken, and he is, the book of Ezekiel starts with him walking along a canal in his refugee camp in Babylon, and he starts having this series of crazy, crazy visions. If you ever read the book of Ezekiel, which you should, um, if you are lost when you are reading the visions, it's okay. They're super crazy. They are the most vivid, expressive language in, about visions in all of the Old Testament. It rivals anything that you'll read in the book of Revelation. It is a trip and a half. Ezekiel is having these dreams and doing these crazy things in Babylon, where God tells him, you have to lay on your side for 390 days. And you got to roll over on your other side and lay there for 40. He's taking his hair, shaving it off, and chopping it up with swords. He's building little models of Jerusalem. And he's giving these strange prophetic messages telling the people of Israel, Jerusalem is going to fall. God is going to judge the people because they have failed to be who they are supposed to be. It's lots and lots and lots of, again, bad news. Because Israel has been doing some really bad things. But then in Ezekiel 36, again, the note kind of changes. And there's this hope that's spoken of. But listen to why God says He's going to do what he, He's going to do. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, 
which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Similar theme that Isaiah talked about. I'm going to bring you out from all these other nations. I'm going to bring you back. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Listen. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name that I will vindicate my holiness. Is Isaiah tells the people, you have been made for the glory of God. For God to be glorified. That is why you have been made. Ezekiel tells them, I will save you first and foremost to vindicate my reputation. When God is stewing in anger at the people of Israel in the Old Testament, multiple times Moses will come before God and say, for the sake of your name, do not judge these people. Have mercy on these these people. For the sake of your name, do this thing. And what does God say He's going to do? That he will take a heart of stone and he will put within them a heart of flesh. He'll take the, a, a, a heart of rebellion, of opposition, of sin, and put within them a heart that beats and functions like it should. Ultimately, he says in Ezekiel that he'll put his own spirit inside of them. Because this has been the problem for Israel for all of the Old Testament is their heart is stony and hard, persisting in disobedience. God commands them in the law, circumcise your heart, mark your heart permanently to make it something other than it is. But then ultimately promising, I will circumcise your heart. I will change your heart. Because we should have no self-confidence. The people of Israel, their story, it is our story. If you think that you can read the Old Testament and you can read these foolish Israelites constantly rebelling in sin and not look at yourself and see the same thing, you are horribly self-deluded. You and I are a long way away from Israel in geography and chronology, and we are just like Israel. So if you are 
somebody who's living in the mid Middle Ages, or if you're living now, trying to say, how do I know that I am good enough for God? The answer that the Reformers gave that Scripture is giving is you are not, and you never will be. Buckle down as much as you want. Try as hard as you can. And even if you think that the the agreement is somehow 50-50, that God will give you something called grace and you will provide a little bit of effort, that bargain doesn't work. Because if that was the case, then what happens when the people of God actually become the people of God? What happens when you have entered into a bargain with God and you, for whatever, for the next 15 minutes, an hour, you feel pretty good about yourself and you feel like you are upholding your end of the bargain? When somebody looks outside of you and say, why do all those good things happen to them? Why are they okay? Why are they right with God? If you are able to say, you know what? 75% God, 25% me. I was smart enough to make the right decision. I was able to be good enough for a long enough period of time. I was able to work to outdo all of my bad things. It was mostly God, but 25% me. Then you are living and proclaiming something that the Scriptures are not. Because what God keeps insisting is, I am vindicating my name. Israel's existence, the church's existence, is first and foremost about God and His name and His character. And His plan, His purpose, His way of doing things is to construct things so that no one can look at anybody in the church, anybody in all of human history who has actually known God and say anything except God has done that. That is it. That guy, that woman, those people are fools. They couldn't find their way out of a spiritual paper bag. God saved them. The whole thing is set up that way so that you cannot in any way say, well, a little bit of this hinges on me. No, it hinges on you and I, not at all. The work of salvation, the plan of God in the world, it all hinges on Him entirely because He's the only one who cannot and will not screw it up completely. Israel's story is a testament again and again. Even the heroes will screw it up. The whole Old Testament is written in such a way so that even the heroes are terrible people. So that you and I cannot read the Old Testament and say anything other than, my goodness, only God can make this happen. The New Testament writers will reflect on this. They will see these themes of God claiming absolute primacy in all things according to salvation. 
We, we've read this passage in Ephesians 2 several times over this series because it's so pivotal as we talk about these solas. And there's this little thing that Paul says, this little phrase in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. And if I could clarify that a little bit, so that no one may boast about anything. So that no one may boast about anything. The centrality of God's glory alone is about God planting Himself in the middle of human history and saying, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the Lord. You cannot worship any other God. All of your other gods, whether they have statues, whether they have funny names to them, whether they are invisible spiritualities, whether they are unnamed efforts at you being a good person, whatever you want to name them, however you want to describe them, I am the Lord alone. There is no other God. I am the source of salvation. Not you. Never, ever you. And this is freedom. This is absolute freedom for a people who are laboring under the bondage of trying to constantly be good enough. If you think that salvation is a partnership between you and God, then you will always have this thing on your back where you're realizing again, yet again today, I was not good enough. I did not live up. And there will very rarely be a day where that thing, that monkey, is not on your back. One of John Calvin's chief points about this topic is that the people that he was ministering to and caring for were so obsessed with whether or not they were good enough in the moment that they didn't even have time to think about worshiping God with their life or caring for their neighbor. They were constantly laboring with this thing on their back. Am I good enough today? God does the work of salvation entirely so that only He gets the glory. Now, you and I can hear that and you can say, that seems a little selfish, a little self-involved. I don't really picture God that way. Kind of always pictured God being nicer, a little more friendly Santa-ish than that. Seems kind of egotistical. It would be egotistical if God was not actually the most beautiful, loving, worthy, holy person in all the universe. If He was not infinitely good and holy and actually worthy of that centrality, then it would be egotistical if you try to live with that modus operandi, I want everybody to always be about me, 
we would look at you and say, you are an egotistical maniac because you are a small, imperfect, finite person that doesn't come close to deserving that. But if God actually is who we say He is, that He is infinitely holy and perfect and good and loving, then it is absolutely right that everything be about and for and circling around Him. To do anything other than that would be to put something else in the middle and make an idol of it. But not only that, not only is he right and justified in making everything about himself, but he has made you and I in such a way that when we are beholding the glory of God, we become all that we were meant to be. We as humans were meant to see and behold and take part in and enjoy the glory of God. So when God makes everything about Him, it is not a selfish act. It is supreme generosity. When He will not let you make much of anything except Him. He is giving to you the depths of His kindness because you were made for glory, the glory of God. When God takes center stage in the work of salvation, when He gives a gift that you could not muster up yourself, when He takes out your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, and He does all of that work in salvation, when He stands on center stage and says, it is all about My name and My glory, He is raising you up and stooping low in love. He is not the God who stands distant and puts His foot on your neck and crushes you in some weird, strange, ego-trippy kind of taking center stage. It is God taking center stage in the story that He might scoop you up and bring Him close to you. And when He does that, He sets you free. You do not have to worry. You don't have to worry whether you are good enough for God. You never were. The plan never hinged on you. It always hinged on God. So when you fall short, as you undoubtedly will today and tomorrow and every other day, you can take comfort that God has relieved you of the burden of your own salvation. He has made you right with Him by His own work. And you can respond to Him in repentance filled with love and not just fear. And if you have been made right with God, you have been set free to not constantly be working to try to tip the scales in your favor, which will never work. But because God has taken care of the deepest, most pressing questions of your heart, you are free to be more fully human towards God and towards your neighbor than ever you've been. Suddenly, you are able 
instead of spending all of your emotional and spiritual and physical energy trying to be good enough, you can spend your days rejoicing in God and giving away your life freely out of joy and love. When God takes center stage, He bears all the weight. When God takes center stage, He gets all the glory. And you and I live in the shadow of that glory more alive than ever we could hope to have been. If you are here this morning and you, and you do this by nature just like me, you are in a spot where you are afraid that God might not accept you, where you've been trapped in any numbers of sin, you have worked so hard, and you just wonder in the back of your head, will, will God ever accept me and lovely, love me? God intends to get all of the glory in your salvation. He does not want to share with you. And that means He has done enough for that question for, to be settled for you forever. You don't have to worry anymore. And if you are here today and your whole life has been about being a good enough person and you don't like this news that God is doing everything for His glory, God is going to keep hounding you. And someday, the construction of all your pursuit of being good enough will fall apart because that is a house of cards that can bear no weight. And when that happens, when you are just so to the end of yourself, so tired of trying to be good enough and comparing yourself and making sure you're high enough on the chart of those around you, God is standing before you and offering you a life that is not consumed by self-obsession, constant self-evaluation and self-measuring. He's offering to you a life in Jesus Christ where you are freed from sin. And you can be His son or you can be His daughter. And He enters no bargain with you. He offers you merely His gift. God gets glory alone so that you and I can be saved all the way down. We can be saved from ourselves, from the sin that we have done and the sin that has been done to us. And that God might proclaim to the world, this is who I am. Generous, victorious King. And these are my children now and forever. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that our, our inclination is to step into the middle of history to make our story all about us, to make all of history all about ourselves. And God, we know that that leaves us frustrated and afraid. Your own people that bear your name can be people who who labor under this, this weight just like anybody else. How can I be good enough? But salvation has always been about Your goodness, Your being good enough. God, I pray this morning that You would help us see You with fresh eyes, that we can see how great and glorious and good You are, and You are sufficiently good for Your people. 
to those who have already known that to some degree, but who have slidden back into working for your approval, God, I pray that they would see the cross, they would see the work of Jesus, and they would know that your approval has been granted fully and finally. And God, to those who do not know you, who do not confess your name, God, I pray that you would free them into this life where you are the one who puts the sheep in the pasture. You are the one who completes the work of salvation that you began. God, help us to see you as you are, as loving and good King who wins life for his people by laying down his life for his sheep. You are good, God. Better than we could have hoped for. Help us to believe it and live out of that goodness. We thank you for this, Jesus. Amen.